right, we're excited to be going through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at the King and the Kingdom. The King and the Kingdom. And this morning, we did a kind of an introduction a couple weeks ago, and uh, this morning we will be jumping into the third chapter and looking at John the Baptist, um, understanding uh, the message, the man, and then uh, next week we'll look at the baptism and uh, temptation of Jesus, and so I'm really excited about that. Uh, a couple weeks later, we'll look at the calling of the disciples, and, and we'll get ready for Jesus' first major teaching, which was the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, we have three chapters of Jesus um, teaching uh, some great truth about the kingdom. And so, uh, but, but looking at John the Baptist and looking at chapter 3, let's, uh, let's read there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. All right, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all of Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were, being, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with the water with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff. He will burn with unquenchable fire. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but it's impossible to go in two directions at the same time. It's impossible to go in two directions at the same time. I mean, ultimately, you can't be in two places at the same time. You can't go in two different directions. I mean, at some point, like coming here, you had to make a choice. You know, am I, am I going to turn right? Am I going to turn left? Am I going to go this way? Or am I going to go that way? Am I going to come in this entrance into the um, parking lot or that entrance? Am I going to come in? You know, you have to make a choice which direction you're going to pick. We, we make choices all the time about life, about um, what we're going to wear, what we're going to do, what we're going to eat, what we're going to... And, and the, the reality, though, is, is you can't go in two different directions in the same way... Um, we can't believe two things um, are true when they're opposite truth. Okay, you can't say that um, that there is a God and then there isn't a God. You can't say that Jesus is the only way and Buddha is also the only way. You see what I'm saying? We 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 live in this world and in our culture because of tolerance and pluralism. Uh, we live in this with this mentality that kind of a, a buffet style um, philosophy of life. 
a, a buffet-style uh, spirituality where we pull a little bit from a lot of different sources. And in the same way that we can't, have, can't go in two directions, in fact, Jesus put it this way, he said, you can't serve two masters, we, we basically yield ourselves to belief systems that contradict one another. And, and, and people that profess to follow Christ are as bad as any. In fact, one of the, the, the names that we thought about calling this series, instead of king and the kingdom, we were going to call it two kingdoms as we start looking at the gospel of Matthew. And what's really the ultimate story of the book of Matthew? It's really is presenting two kingdoms for us in the same way that you can't go in two directions. In the same way, as Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Another way of putting that is you can't live in two kingdoms. I mean, you either you're going to live the philosophy of one kingdom or the other, but there's basically there's two options in life. You can submit yourself to the King Jesus, to King Jesus, into his kingdom, or you can submit yourself to whatever other little K king that you create or that you like or that you think is cool or that you think is neat or that you think, and you could submit yourself to that. That's your options. Now, there's, there's a thousand different options in, in the, in the non-Jesus kingdom camp. Lots of different, but ultimately they all fall under the lordship of the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of this world, a lot of different things you can call it. Or you have the other option, you have the kingdom of life, you have the kingdom of light, you have the kingdom of Jesus, you have the kingdom of eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That, that's your options. So you can have King Jesus or you can have King me. That's, that's your option, but, you, but there's not, you can't have a little bit of both. And so as we look at the, the message of John the Baptist, and we look at God sending John the Baptist as the, um, the one who was preparing the way, crying out in the wilderness, ultimately he was confronting people with this very same message. And you say, well, it's different today than it was back then. Oh, there was a bazillion different options then too. Now, it's probably more today, I would say. And then when you, when you throw the internet on it and you throw the, the mentality of our, um, you know, our culture, um, you know, that, that ultimately we, we live in a, in a culture that the, the greatest ideal is tolerance, but our tolerance is intolerant. You know? It's like we are, you have to be tolerant of all different ideologies, but you can never criticize any, you can never question whether there's really truth behind it. In fact, you know, all truth is truth. Your truth, my truth, whoever's truth, it doesn't really matter. It's all truth is equal. And, and you know, you can't really judge another person if they believe differently than you, because who are you to say that your truth is better than their truth? I mean, that's, and so we just, we stop there. And at no point are we allowed, because everybody's so, um, their emotions are kind of on their shoulders and on their sleeve, that they, 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 you can't really ask hard questions about anybody's belief system or about your own belief system for fear that somebody might get their feelings hurt. Instead of graciously, lovingly being able to talk about, well, how do we know that this is true? How do we know this is right? How do we know that Jesus is the way or Jesus isn't the way? Why, why can't we ask those questions in our culture? And so John the Baptist, in that day, it wasn't a problem to, to say these things. I, I think you can pretty much have whatever opinion you want. And John the Baptist is shouting. He's crying, not, he, not weeping, but crying out and preaching and proclaiming at the River Jordan that the kingdom of God is coming and challenging people to prepare their hearts for the king. He was challenging them to repent of their kingdom and prepare their hearts for the kingdom. Now, now, understand, we talked about this several weeks ago, when John the Baptist is preaching this message, this is what's 
beautiful about this, the Gospel of Matthew. He is talking to religious people. He's talking to highly religious people who are waiting for the Messiah to come to lead them um, and to establish his kingdom and to lead them to freedom on earth. And so the religious people, with their religious system built upon you know, Judaism um, and with a lot of additives, um, are waiting for the Messiah to come and John the Baptist is calling them to repent of their form of religion that they have created, that they have modified from biblical Judaism, biblical understanding of God, and repent of that to be ready for the true Messiah to come. And, and so in the same way, you, you sit in two possible mentalities as you're hearing this. You're either a person that, that is maybe far from God or not sure what you think about God or you feel distant and kind of in rebellion towards God and you're, you just feel like you're not right necessarily with God or, or you might be in the camp of saying, man, I, I feel like I'm right with God because I've done all these things and, and you, you're basing your relationship with God based upon self-righteousness and, and the things you do and I impress God because I, do, I read my Bible or I attend church regularly or I, do, I give or I, I don't give or I do this or I don't do that. Or, and you have this religious kind of, qualifications that if I do these things, I know that God is pleased with me. And so in other words, you, you kind of have a religious system that's worked out and you've worked it up so where you know how to check the box that God's happy with me this week. And then the other option will be the gospel of which John the Baptist is trying to prepare people to be ready for, the coming of Christ. And so we're going we're gonna to look in the next moments at, at how do we prepare ourselves for the gospel? How do we prepare ourselves for Jesus to have freedom to be the king and to live in his kingdom? What does that look like? How do we have that posture? But understand this. Please, I, I want to beg you this morning to, to be open to the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life to not be the tendency when we listen to, to preaching or teaching for that matter, is, is to think about how this applies to everybody else and not ourselves. And I can assure you, every one of us, including myself, have some things to repent of this morning. Now, you might need to repent of your um, rebellion towards God, or you might need to repent of your religiosity, but undoubtedly, you have something to repent of. And so as we go through this, be, be humble and be open. Okay, God, what is there anything? Just I, I would... I would challenge you in your spirit even to pray as we're going through god what do i is there something i need to repent of so that you can have freedom to to be my king and for me to live freely in your kingdom and so i I would encourage you to have that posture as you're listening as you're thinking through these things so in verse one in those days john the baptist came preaching in the wilderness of judea repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand now this message of repentance was John the Baptist's message, but then John and uh, Jesus in chapter 4, the very next chapter, verse 17, he says the same thing, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he sends out the disciples in um, the apostles in, in chapter 10, verse 7, and they're preaching the same message, telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Both preach the same message, repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus, 40 days after his resurrection, what, what was Jesus doing? Well, we, it tells us in the very beginning of the book of Acts and the very end of the book of Acts. Really interesting. The beginning of the book of Acts, we find Jesus after having been um, come back from the dead. He's, he's alive after having been crucified, buried, put in the grave, resurrected. 40 days he's on earth. And during that period of 40 days, we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that he was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
So, so John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles are telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then the very last thing we find Jesus doing at the beginning of the book of Acts is to explaining and talking again about the kingdom of God. And then at the very end of the book of Acts, in uh, chapter 28, verse 31, we find Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the end of the book of Acts, what's, what's Paul preaching? What's he talking about? What, what is his... What's his one bullet that he's firing to be able to um, challenge people with the truth about God? He's talking about the kingdom and the king of the kingdom. That's it. He's got one song and he's still singing it. He's talking about King Jesus and his kingdom. That's how the end of the book ends. It begins, begins in Acts with Jesus talking about the kingdom. It ends with Paul talking about Jesus and his kingdom. So it would be important for us to understand a little bit about the kingdom and to understand a little bit about how we prepare ourselves for the kingdom. So it says in verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, speaking of one who would come, and here's the quote from Isaiah, the voice of one crying, or you, you might put there, shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, this, this concept of making a path straight, in, in their mindset, um, in, in this moment in time when God is about to step onto main stage um, in his creation. We talked a couple weeks ago about this being the fullness of time, that we talked about um, how you have a universal language at this point in world history, and you also had this, this great interstate system that the Roman Empire created where you could easily get anywhere because they had, they had set up these main interstate roadways to basically kind of make straight the path for travelers as they would move around the Roman Empire. And so undoubtedly, when they're hearing this, they're thinking about the imagery of all that goes into making a road, cutting it through hillsides and countries and over creeks and rivers and and all that's involved to make a path for people to be able to travel throughout the Roman Empire. He's making the path straight. When I was in college here, I remember, how many of you guys ever drove on old Sam's Gap Road over to North Carolina to Asheville? Ever been on that? Yeah, at, at nighttime in the wintertime with trucks coming? With breaks, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, Sam's Gap. I remember as a kid um, living in Florida, we would travel up here to visit grandparents and driving Sam's Gap, that little two lane. If you've never been on it, one next time you go to Asheville, you need to you need to pray up and then go on the two lane. Um, it's really you don't have to pray as much now because they don't have trucks on it; they're all on the big one. But uh, but when I was in college, they they finished the road, they finished the um, the four lane, the interstate cutting over North Carolina. Had their side done for a long time, but took forever for Tennessee to finish their side. But they finally finished it, and they and they cut through these mountains. It's incredible to to make that drive and to see all the engineering that went into making the path reasonably straight so that you can um, travel with reasonable ease. Uh, from from this side of the mountain to the other side of the mountain. And that's the imagery that there that is being called out. Make the path straight, cut through, make it so that we can get from point A to point B with the ease, with the greatest of ease. And so he's saying, prepare, crying out in the wilderness to make the path straight for the Lord to get to us and for us to get to the Lord. Now in verse four, where he's described a little bit, says, now John wore a a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Second Kings verse one verse, uh, you don't have to look there, but chapter one, verse eight, it says, they answered him, he, Elijah, wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. It is Elijah the Tishbite. Uh, Then in Malachi chapter four, verses five through six, it says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, this is a prophecy looking forward. 
Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it says, He will go before him in the spirit of the Lord, of Spirit and power of Elijah. This is the angel speaking to um, John the Baptist. I'm sorry, yeah, John the Baptist's parent, Zechariah, his father, and telling him that he, that his son is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a, a people prepared. So clearly, John the Baptist, and Jesus affirms this later on in the gospel. Clearly, John the Baptist is the coming in the spirit of Elijah. And it's not that Elijah is uh, indwelling him. It's not that he's channeling Elijah. It's not that, what the point is, what, who, what is the spirit of Elijah? Who is, better yet, the spirit of Elijah? The spirit of Elijah is the Holy Spirit. And who is the spirit of John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit? Same one, the same one that was filling John the Baptist even in his mother's womb when he leapt in the presence of Jesus in his mother's womb. So John the Baptist, full of the Spirit, is preaching um, with the same Spirit that Elijah has coming as a kind of the fulfillment of, um, not kind of, but as the fulfillment of these prophecies. And so this is why he looks the way he looks. This, he's a raw guy. And one of the things I love about, uh, you know, every once in a while, you know, if you guys have been around for, I'll go on a, a, a rant about sissified Christianity. And I, I love John the Baptist because he's just, he's totally a dude, I mean, he is totally he, a dude. He is not wearing some frou-frou, axe body spray, you know, whatever, you know, cushy, girly boy um, that is like, you know, is, is set up now for like, that's what guys look like. If you want to be a cool guy, you have to be an effeminate little girly boy with, with you know, whatever. And I don't want to go further than that. But except to say that... <laughs> that when the Bible shows you a man, I mean, they are, he, John the Baptist is a dude. I mean, he is a, stu- I mean, he is a man's man. I mean, if you're going to go down a dark alley with somebody with you, you would want John the Baptist. I mean, he come rolling up with his camel hair and his leather belt, you know, chewing on bugs and dipping them in honey. I mean, this guy was, a, he was a man, he could survive uh, in, in any climate. He's living in the wilderness and he's, it's no big deal, man. He's just, He's great. I mean, this is like the, before Survivor Man, there was John the Baptist, okay? This guy would make Bear Grylls cry. I mean, he would be afraid of John the Baptist, I think. Now, he probably would like him. But, um, and so John the Baptist, this stud, this man's man, he comes. And so a couple things about John the Baptist. The purpose of, of his message, I've kind of talked about this a little bit, but the purpose of his message, two, two things. Ultimately, he's preparing the way of the Messiah, and you see that in um, an introduction and then a preparation. Introduction and preparation. John chapter 1, verse 31, it says, For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that I might be revealed, that it might be revealed to Israel, that he might be revealed to Israel. So one of the purposes behind John the Baptist's um, message in his baptism is, is one of introduction. He's introducing people and revealing to people uh, the Messiah who's about to come. The second thing is preparation. The Jews would often, uh, one of the things that they would do is when somebody, when, when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, they would baptize, they would have them baptized. They would actually literally, they would baptize themselves. In fact, um, around Jerusalem, they've excavated on the, on the outside walls, um, just, just around the corner from the western wall that's, that's there to this day. They've 
they've excavated a whole bunch of um, ceremonial washing pools where Jewish people would come. And for that matter, when they would come to, the, to Jerusalem um, for the Passover or Day of Atonement or whatever feast they're coming to celebrate, um, if they had possibly walked over a, a grave or um, they've touched a Gentile or walked through Samaria or done anything that could have possibly rendered them ritually unclean, they would go through these what they would call mikvah pools. They're these little baptism pools where they would, they would process through them, and it was a way of, of symbolizing that they were, they were purifying themselves um, for, uh, for worship in Jerusalem and at the temple. And so a convert from, from uh, a non-Jewish faith to Judaism would do the same thing. They would be baptized in a, in a symbolic act of kind of picturing that, that they're um, kind of washing away their old thinking, and they're, they're a new person now. They're, they have a new belief system. And so with, with similar in, in, um, imagery, John the Baptist is calling people to repent, and then he's baptizing them. But instead of them baptizing themselves, John the Baptist is the one doing the baptizing. He's helping them go under and come out. And so he's, he is facilitating this. But John the Baptist's baptism, a couple things we need to know about it, was a baptism of repentance. In fact, the content of John's message was first and foremost that people need to um, repent and be baptized. Baptism of repentance. Now in Acts, um, I believe it's Acts 18, 17 or 18, maybe 19, 17, 18, 19, Apollos is, comes on the scene and uh, he is the last of, of the um, kind of people groups. There's four people groups that repent, follow Christ, and are filled with the Spirit and it's exhibited by tongues. There's only, it happens four times in the book of Acts and it's showing that the Holy Spirit has legitimately come to the Jewish people and filled them, legitimately come to the Gentiles and filled them, legitimately come to the Samaritans and filled them, and now legitimately come to those Old Testament kind of God followers, Old Testament Christians, you might call them. And, and that's Apollos, who was a follower of John the Baptist. And so the disciples meet Apollos, and they're talking to him about his, um, his story and, and about his, his faith and what, what he believes about Jesus. And, and uh, they discovered that he had been baptized, but his baptism was the baptism of John the Baptist. It was the baptism of repentance. And so they asked him to be uh, he's rebaptized. Not to say that his first baptism wasn't, wasn't good, but it was different than Jesus' baptism. John's baptism was a baptism with the imagery and the purpose of preparing people for Jesus. Now, the baptism of the, the rest of the New Testament that Jesus commands us in, in the Great Commission is, is a baptism uh, picturing the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. It's a baptism of faith in Jesus, not a baptism of preparation for Jesus. Does it make sense? It's, it's a different, similar imagery um, or similar mode, but different purpose behind the two. Are you with me on this? Okay. And so the baptism of repentance, then you have a baptism of... Um, now, one, one more thing about baptism. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but, but quite literally, the word baptism means to, um, to put under, to submerge. It, it's used in... Greek literature to dye fabric. Um, it's used to describe a ship that's sinking, uh, that has, has um, uh, sank, for that matter, that has been baptized. And so um, there's, a, there's a battle of a couple ships, and one ship sinks, and, and the, it's described that that ship has been baptized. Baptizo is, is the word there. And so Bible um, translators, so as to sell more books, have transliterated the word over, and they've just taken the Greek word baptizo, and they've just Englishized it, okay, and made it uh, baptism, so as to not have to explain what it really means. But if they were to literally translate it, then they would say submerged, or emerged, or dunked, or 
whatever, because that's the picture of baptism. So when John the Baptist is, is preaching this uh, message of repentance and, and baptism, that he's, he's dunking people, and, and that's the process that's going by, and that's, that's what we find all throughout the whole um, Old Testament. And so the content of his message was baptism of repentance. Secondly, it was the fruit of repentance. Not only were people to be baptized um, to prepare themselves, but it was, they were, there was to be fruit of repentance. Look in verse 5. There Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Literally, brood is, is offspring. You, you're, just, you're a bunch of viper babies, is what he's calling them. You bunch of snakes. So you brood or you offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. In John chapter 8, verse 44, um, Jesus kind of carries on the same theme. And here's what Jesus says. He says, you are of your father, the devil. This is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus. The religious leaders of that day. To us, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they're the bad guys. But in reality, if we lived in that day, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, man, they were the religious elites. They were the leaders of the churches of that day and and he was calling them to repent and jesus went on to say you're you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies and so uh, john the baptist you offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children of Abraham. Okay, let's pause for a second at this verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. That word in keeping could also be translated in correspondence to repentance or bear fruit worthy of repentance. In other words, if we were to take a scale and we were to put the idea of repentance on one side and then we were to put the fruit in your life, my life, does it correspond with repentance? Does the actions, because we say, well, I, I believe God and I, I want to follow God and I want to follow Jesus and I want to, and so yeah, I, I trust God. And we take the, the truth of God's word and, and how God explains how we're to live in, in his ways and we put them in one side of the scale and then we put our life on the other side. And does it really, does it correspond with? Is it really worthy of the faith that we confess? I think if we're honest, often, more often than not, it does not. There's no fruit that measures up with the message of repentance or the confession of repentance. And so, so what we say we believe seldom matches up with what we really believe as seen by the fruit of our lives. And that is the message of John the Baptist. He is challenging them to repent of their um, religiosity, the religious leaders, and telling, calling them um, children of Satan, ultimately, a bunch of vipers repent and show fruit in correspondence with, fruit um, in keeping with repentance. So he talks about the baptism of repentance, fruit of repentance, and the third thing he mentions is the heresy 
of heritage, the heresy of heritage. Unfortunately, this is becoming less of an issue. I, honestly, I don't know whether it's better for this to be an issue or for it not to be an issue, but, uh, but it's, it's going to be the point um, in another generation or two generations in, in the Bible belt that you're going to have to go one or two generations back to find somebody who was a follower of Jesus. Uh, this is true in Toronto. Many of you know that that was one of the places we, we prayed that, that God would send us. We wanted to go um, plant a church in Toronto. That was just a place that God had placed in our heart um, for various reasons. But one of the things that so burdened me and, and burdens me about Canada and about, about that region of, of the world is, is that, um, first of all, it's incredibly multi-ethnic. There's tons of people coming from so many different countries to that area, particularly to the greater Toronto area. But then when you find legitimate Canadians that, that are Canadians nationally have been there for years, you have to go three generations back to find somebody that followed God. Three generations back. And what, here's what God did in, in my heart and my, my family's heart. As we were praying for where God was calling us, um, and, and we thought God was calling us to Johnson City, and then we thought God was, might be calling us to Toronto, and then he brought us back to Johnson City. And here's what God began to show me. But I through the wisdom of a friend and kind of praying through some of their counsel, as I was praying through this, it, I just I landed on, God just kept, in, I think it's the Holy Spirit, impressing upon my heart that Johnson City, East Tennessee, the Bible Belt will be no different 10 or 15 years from now. One more generation, two more generations, at the rate that things are going right now, the decline of those involved in church, those involved in doing anything to pursue God in their lives, uh, it's going to be no different here in another couple of generations. Toronto has the absence of God, not because they never had God, but because they've rejected him and they haven't passed the baton from generation to generation. And this area will be no different. But so, so how are we passing the faith in the next generation? But pause there, because what John the Baptist's message is, is the heresy of heritage. Just because your grandpa and your grandma love Jesus doesn't mean you're getting in on their coattails. Just because your parents were faithful to, you know, pursue God doesn't mean that that faith is your own faith. At some point, all of us have to repent and believe in the gospel in, 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 of Jesus, believe in the truth about Jesus. It has to, at some point, become your faith. As a servant as a college pastor for 10 years, one of the most discouraging things for me was seeing kids grow up so heavily involved in church, going on mission trips and going to youth camps and being involved in all kinds of different stuff, and then graduating from high school and going away and, and, and discovering that their faith was never their own. It was their parents' faith, and it was borrowed. And so they go on and they walk away from God. And, and then parents get upset about it. They don't understand, why has my kid done this? Why are they not walking with God? And First John tells us, they went out from us because they were not of us. They had a superficial religiosity that more often than not was not authentically theirs. It's the heresy of heritage. The danger of growing up in a lukewarm spiritual house or, or for that matter, even a passionately Christ-centered house. And there's a tendency for us to just assume a lot of things, and then we end up assuming a faith that was never really ours. The heritage, the heresy of heritage. I, it's a challenge for all of us to say, okay, do I believe what I believe? Is my faith in Christ, or is this just traditionalism for me? Because 
to be honest, that doesn't make the day. It's not going to float the boat. It's not going to work if, if your faith is, is borrowed from somebody else. It has to be yours. can't be your spouse's. can't be your friends. can't be your buddies. can't be. It has to be your own faith. And that was his challenge to them. Look, he says, God can raise up stones to, to be children of Abraham if he wants to. He doesn't need you and your heritage and your bloodline. Doesn't The way to become a child or a, a descendant of Abraham is through repentance and faith in Jesus. So all of us have that opportunity. And so he says, I baptize you with repentance. Let me back up. Verse uh, 8. So bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So verse 10. Even now the axe is laid at the root of trees and every tree that does not bear fruit. In other words, every tree that doesn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember the scale. Every fruit, every tree that, that the, the professed fruit of it doesn't measure up. It's not equal. It's not worthy of it. doesn't correspond with, with the faith. It's going to be cut down. The axe is at the root. It's laying, it's ready to take the tree down. So there's an urgency to his message. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming is mightier than I and whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and the two key images here and gather his wheat into the barn and gather the chaff. He will burn in unquenchable fire. Now this brings us to some kind of, it's important for you to understand a little bit about how the, the Jewish people and how John the Baptist viewed the end times. Okay, he saw kind of two spheres. He saw the time that is or the world that is, and then the, he saw the world that was to come. And that's just the Jewish mentality of the end times. There was the world, and then there was the, the day of the Lord or the time that will come or the day that will come or the, the time that will be. And so you had these two separate groups, the time that is, the time that will be. But what he didn't realize is the two actually overlapped. And so you have the day that is, the day that is to come. And in the middle, there's this period that, that many people have called the, the age of mystery. In, in this age of mystery uh, is, is the period I would say we're in right now. Now, another way of looking at it is they look towards the future and they saw this mountain in the future. That was the day that was going to come, this mountain of the kingdom of God. And they prayed and longed and waited for the Messiah to come. And they waited and longed for the king of this kingdom to come. But what they didn't realize is sometimes as you're looking at a mountain, you, you, you think, man, that's a huge mountain. But if you were to travel around, you find that it's not just one mountain. There's actually two peaks. And what they didn't see is there was actually two peaks to that kingdom of God. They were looking from this side and they didn't see it as it was. And so it's not that this concept wasn't in the Old Testament, it just wasn't clear. And the, the, the rabbis and the, the Jewish teachers, for the most part, nobody saw this. They didn't see the Messiah coming um, in two trips. They saw one trip. They saw him coming to conquer. He's coming. The winnowing fork is in his hand. At one visit, he's going to gather the wheat into the barn, the chaff into the fire. He's going to clean it up, and it's game over. What they didn't realize is this period of mystery that was going to be in the middle. And so it is marked, the beginning of the kingdom begins. It's inaugurated with the first coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ, most notably, was uh, ultimately Jesus comes in as a suffering servant and he dies. And so we're, we're marking this on our little chart here as the cross. So the first coming of Christ, the, the high point of it, the cross, was the beginning of the kingdom. 
Okay, so when Jesus steps on to the scene here in a couple verses, at the John's baptism, this is the inauguration, the beginning of the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's here. Um, some, some people called it um, already, but not yet. It's already here, but not yet completely realized. And so this, there's, there's this tension where the kingdom of God is here, but God has not completely manifested his rule and his reign. Not to say he's not ruling and reigning, not to say the kingdom of God hasn't come. It is here, but he hasn't fully manifested his reign. He will do that. So there's two comings. There's the first one. He came um, to, as the suffering servant, and as we see clearly brought out in the book of Isaiah, um, and he came, and we, we mark that with the cross. The second coming is the crown. He will come one day to judge the earth. Now, I don't know when he's coming. I don't know if there'll be a tribulation and he'll come. Um, tribulation, rapture, come. Rapture, tribulation, and then he'll come. A uh, little tribulation, little rapture, little come. I don't know how it's going to go. There'll be no rapture. I think that, I don't know, but I can tell you this. I know what I think is true, but I, that's not even the issue. What, what, is, what is key is factually, without question, we can debate the exact coming and the exact order of events. We can debate that. But what we cannot debate is that the king will return. And when he returns, he will establish his full authority over every high point, low point, every nook and cranny of this earth. He will establish his reign, not in the Middle East, not in Asia, but in the, over the whole earth. He will establish his authority. And he will come. And then we mark that with the crown as Jesus comes back, as we see him in Revelation chapter 1, um, crowned and enthroned in his glory. And so we have the cross, we have the crown, and then we have this pe- period of mystery. Another way of calling it is the church age. And so we live in this tension of, of this gap. Now, where are we in this church age? I don't know, but I would say we're probably towards the end of it. But I don't know emphatically. But I do know that Jesus could come back any moment. And I know the king is going to come back and he is going to establish his full reign on this earth. And we need to be prepared for that. And that was the message of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, as we see, we'll see him a little later in the Gospel of Matthew. And again, he continued to live with this tension of not completely understanding how Jesus is going to work this whole thing out. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't know exactly what his game plan was because our ways are not God's ways. I don't know if you struggle with that, but sometimes we have the way we think God should do it. And then there's the way God's going to do it. And God really doesn't lose any sleep over whether he pleases you or not in the way that he unfolds his sovereign, wonderful, beautiful, awesome plan. Because his way is awesome. And so it's better for us just to go, you know what? I don't know exactly how this works, but I know the boundaries. I know that the suffering servant has come to redeem. And one day he's going to come and he's going to reign. And all I know is that he, I want him to reign in my life today. That's the key. And so that's the message of John the Baptist is one of repentance. So basically, the last thing I want to leave you with and, and, and the application, the thing for us to chew on, and I mentioned this at the beginning, was the issue of repentance. Now understand this. You do not need to repent to enjoy most forms of religion. You don't have to repent to have your version of Christianity, your version of Judaism, your version of religion, your version of being irreligious. You don't have to repent to be irreligious, and you don't have to repent to be self-righteous and religious. You can just do whatever you want. You can, on your own efforts and your own merit, you can kind of carve out your own thinking and your own way of walking with God and borrowing from different mentalities and different thoughts and different truths and false truths. And you come, but 
but you cannot experience salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from repentance. You cannot experience the true gospel, and we'll just call it true religion, apart from repentance. It is a prerequisite for preparation for the king. In the same way, this is, this is John the Baptist. This is his message. Here's what he's doing. He's, he's coming as one crying in the wilderness to make straight the path for the Lord. And in the same way that John the Baptist was proclaiming and making straight, the way he did it wasn't with his just yelling and dunking people. It was the message of repentance that levels the ground for us to get to Jesus. If you want to know and if you want to experience the joy and the peace and the happiness and the wonder of a personal relationship with Jesus, of, of, of knowing King Jesus, the only way to get to King Jesus is, is the, the route where the path is straight. And the path is only straight through repentance. Now, repentance does not usher in the king. It's just the first step. It's repentance and then faith. Paul put it this way in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. He said, I've gone house to house. I've gone from life group to life group in your church, and I've been telling you guys everything you need to know throughout the city, everything you need to know. It's not a secret. Here's what I've told you, and here's the message. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus. You can't have faith in Jesus without repentance. And repentance doesn't make faith, necessarily. It, repentance leads to faith. True repentance leads to faith. And so, you need repentance if you want to know Jesus and experience the power of the gospel of Jesus. John's job was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. John's method was preparing the way, uh, of preparing the way was his message of repentance. So, re- repentance prepares the way for the Lord to come into our lives. I want to take a couple moments, and I want to tell you some myths of repentance, and then I want to tell you the maxims of repentance. And because it's alliterated, you probably are smelling, that's probably not his stuff right there, and it isn't. Uh, This is a great book by a guy by the name of Richard Owen Roberts, and he wrote a whole book about Yafik about repentance, and it is a convicting, very uncomfortable book to read, but man, he has some great truth about repentance, and I just want to take a couple moments to share. Let me just give you a couple. I'm not going to give you all seven, but a couple of the myths of repentance. Repentance, uh, one myth of repentance is it is a sorrow, that sorrow equals repentance. Just because you feel bad doesn't mean you repented. That's a myth of repentance. Um, Self-preservation is a myth of repentance. If, If my goal and repenting is to preserve myself. I'm really not repenting. I mean, who's, who's really on the throne there still? It's like, man, I don't want to be burned up in hell on my, as I'm sitting on the throne of my life. And so, you know what? I need to repent of my sin, and you just, we just stay on the throne. Okay, God, I repent. I'm still in charge but I repent. That's not biblical repentance. You with me? I mean, the biblical repentance is getting off the throne and saying, okay, I give it up. I'm done. It's Jesus. You're in charge. No, I trust is in you. You get me out of this situation. You lead my life. You're in charge. Most repentance in most churches, I don't know if you're awakening to what I'm saying here, is false repentance. Because the main way we preach to people to follow Christ 
is we preach a message of self-preservation. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus' message was not a message of self-preservation. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. That's false repentance. Now, let me, let me just give you one more caveat there. That, that's a great place to start. But there's a repentance that we need to repent of. And self-preservation is a great place to start. But to find Jesus, we need to repent of self-preservation and turn to just Jesus. Now, another one is um, penance and repentance are, are not equal. Uh, that, that's another myth of, of repentance, that penance and repentance are equal. That's a myth. That, that if I just feel really guilty and I just punish myself, I punish, how, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but I, I know if you're like me, there's times where I'm, I'm just, I just do something, I'm, I, just, I know that God just convicts me, that was sin, that was wrong. And I, I might even repent and ask God to forgive me, but then I kind of have to punish myself for a couple days or hours or moments or whatever. I just have to, just, I don't deserve to do this or do that, or I don't deserve to, and I, don't, I can't pray right now because I just, I don't know, I'm even worthy to go in the presence of God as if like I'm ever worthy on my own merit to go in the presence. And we just kind of beat ourselves up with guilt over because we feel like if, if I just can have, show some penance then, um, and I can just punish myself for a little while, then, then God will, then I will really have repentance. That's a, that's a myth of repentance. Um, also, repentance cannot be selective. You can't just repent of this part and this part and this part, but I'm, these other ones, they're cool. I'm good with that. You can't do that. You can't pick, you either repent or you don't repent. But repentance in the Bible is, is a change of mind. Repentance in the Bible is a, is a change of attitude. It is, it's an adjustment of one's life to turn towards God. And so repentance is not, you, you, it's not just, you know, I, I really feel bad and I feel guilty. So uh, you can't be selective. And, and let me give you one last thought on, on myths of repentance. Repentance eliminates the consequences of sin. No, it doesn't. There, there is so many sins that are just steeped with consequences that you can confess your sins and repent, and there's still going to be consequences to your sin. Now, there won't be eternal judgment for your sin. God's dealt with that if you repent. But sometimes we, we sin, and, and then we repent because we don't want the consequences of our sin. You're still going to get trouble. Does that make sense? If my kids do something wrong, they clearly knew it was disobedience. Then they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I see that really they, they realize they're bad. They're still going to get spanked. Okay, They're still going to get the wrath on them because they were wrong. What they did, and I, they need to learn that there's a consequence for sin because when they get older, okay, when you're speeding and you, you, know, you get busted by the cops for speeding and you say, I am so sorry, I, didn't, I was totally not thinking. And you legitimately, in your heart, you understand that. Man, I was just, that was totally wrong of me. Mr. Officer, Mrs. Officer, I'm so sorry. Um, please forgive me. I, I will change my thinking and how I drive because I know that was wrong. You think they're going to, you know, oh, okay, well, you're repentant. Okay, well, then I won't give you the $200 ticket. No problem. It's fine. You know, there's consequences for sin in this world, okay? And what you sow, you reap. And sometimes, even though there's repentance, we're right with God, we still have to suffer and deal with the consequences. By God's grace, he can help us through that, and he can even use that for his glory. Don't be scared of that, but just but don't think that magically, because we repent, we shouldn't have consequences. Some of you are reaping a bitter harvest, even though you've repented and followed Christ, you're reaping a, better, a bitter harvest because you've made some really poor decisions in the past. And, and you're right with God, 
but you're still suffering through some of the consequences of those decisions. Repentance doesn't vanish those. Okay, you still have to deal with those, but now you have God's presence in them to help you work through those things. All right, really quickly, seven maxims of repentance, and I won't expound on these, but I will throw them up on the board here so you can see them, you can jot them down, and if you have questions about it, email me, call me, and we'll talk in the lobby more, but let me give these to you really quick. True repentance is a gift of God. Repentance, true repentance is a gift of God. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It, is it painful? Yes, but man, is it a wonderful gift. Second, true repentance is not a single act, but it's ongoing. So if you're sitting here going, man, I did that. Like I so did that when I was 13 and the revival preacher was at my church and screaming and, and I was just, and they, they locked the doors and turned the heat up and I was sweating and I had to go to the bathroom really bad and I repented. In that moment, I repented and I did it. That, I did it and I'm, I'm, I know Jesus now. And so, because I repent, no, are you repenting? Because as I said at the beginning of the service, you and I, all of us, we, got, we have stuff to repent of. We have stuff. And God in his grace is constantly revealing stuff to us so that we can repent of those things so that we can be more like Jesus on the outside as he's made us on the inside. Repentance is a process. It's ongoing. Third, it's not turning from what you have done, but who you are. We don't repent for the action. We repent for the heart. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out. Your problem isn't your actions. Your problem's your heart. My problem's my heart. Man, I got a messed up heart. I need to repent of that. And so that's, that's one of the maxims of, of repentance. Not turning from what you have done, but who you are. It's not what you do for yourself, but what you do for God. It's not, repentance is not what you do for yourself, but what you do for God. And this is similar to the self-preservation thing. It's kind of a hard concept, but it's not, here's, here's the thought. It's not, I don't want hell, but I want Jesus. That's repentance. Does that make sense? It, it's to say that, you know, like John, Jonathan Edwards, he talked about how um, that God holds us on a skinny, tiny, littlest of threads over the wrath his wrath. So, so we're sinners in the hands of an angry God, that his wrath is burning against our sin. And God has dropped this, we, he's hanging us on this little thread, preserving us by his grace over his wrath. We don't look down at that wrath and go, oh, I don't want to die. Okay, Jesus, I want you. And we say, Jesus, I see that you are of infinite worth. You are so gracious and loving to have preserved me to this day. You, you, have, you have given me so much I don't even deserve, and you have died on the cross and laid your life down. King Jesus left the glory of heaven where he fully reigned. He left the glory of heaven, and he came to the earth not to conquer, but to die for our sins, to suffer a horrific, horrific death after living a perfect life, and also that we can be restored in a relationship with him. He even sent John the Baptist to prepare us for repentance so we can know him. How gracious is King Jesus? I want King Jesus. I love King Jesus. Yeah, I don't want wrath, but even if I had wrath, if there was a possibility for me to go to hell and live for the glory of Christ, I would go to hell and live for the glory of Christ because I am now convinced that Christ is the only one worth living for. His purposes are the only thing that matter. This is what compelled 
Paul to say, if I could go to hell on behalf of my people, I would do it. Because he so wanted them to know Jesus. Our mentality would be like, I'm not going to hell for anybody. I'm just trying to get myself out of it. I don't want to go there. What do I got to do to get out of this thing? Jesus? Okay, I'll do Jesus. Buddha? Okay, I'll, I'll do, but what I got to do? What, I got to just do good, some good works? What, what do I got to do to get out of this thing? And, and at no point are we going, man, where's Jesus in this? We're, we're, I want Jesus. He's the one. I'm going to surrender and live for him however, wherever, whatever. And that's why what, what, when bad stuff happens in our life and we get upset and mad about it, it shows that we are about self-preservation, not about Jesus. When King Jesus is on the throne of our life, we just say, okay, King Jesus, if you're asking me to walk through this suffering, I will do it because I know that you love me you provide for me, you take care of me, and whatever you have for me, it will be better than what I have for myself. So by faith, I trust you. I repent, self-preservation, I trust in Jesus. So repentance and faith, once again, the last three, true repentance is not just of sin's fruits, but sin's roots. It's not just of sin's fruits, but of sin's roots. That's self-explanatory. This is important. Number six, true repentance is not secret, but open. You know, one of the surest ways to know if you've really repented of your sins is if you can freely talk about them. And I don't mean glory in them, and I also don't mean talking about things that are inappropriate, um, for depending on the given audience. You with me? I mean, there's some things you just don't need to talk about in mixed company. Um, but, but within the appropriate friendships, relationship, whatever, that you can, you can own up to and you can, you can talk about it because you know that it is... It has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And my righteousness is not in your perception of me and what you think about me. And so my sin, I don't have to keep it a secret because Jesus has nailed it to the cross. And he has, God has poured out his wrath on that upon Christ. And so I don't have to live and pretend and hide. I can be open that I'm not perfect. I can be open that I need Christ. Repentance is not secret, it's open. And to more, if we would be more open and authentic about our need for Jesus, more people that are far from God will be interested in hearing about it. Lastly, it's both negative and positive. Repentance, true repentance is both negative and positive. Matthew 5, 16 says, Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Repentance isn't just turning away from the bad stuff, it's turning to the good stuff. It's, it's not just the Ten Commandments, do not murder. It's, it's love your enemies. It's not just, um, you know, we, we have a tendency to always emphasize the do nots, and we never shift to realize that the gospel is about the do's. And it's about what, what now the fruit of repentance is manifesting in my life and how I live radically different, and I love, and I serve, and I give all through the grid of what Christ has done for me, not to obtain righteousness, but have the overflow of the righteousness that he has provided in his person, in my life. And so that's where true repentance leads. This concept is, is huge. And I, I would ask you to prayerfully go home and pray through these things and just ask God, where, where am I at on this, Father? And, and again, you might need to repent of your repentance. It's not my goal to make anybody doubt where they are in their relationship with Christ, but it is my goal to not allow you or myself to live under some myth of some false repentance where I'm still the center of my universe and Jesus is now a key figure. 
but for us to repent of ourselves, our sin, our religiosity, our false religion, and to turn to Jesus and to rest in the gospel of what he has accomplished with his righteousness and then yielding his life to pour for God's wrath to be poured out on it. He has provided my righteousness. He has paid for my sin. And he has provided your righteousness. He's paid for your sin. But, but simply put, repentance prepares us for King Jesus. And so I hope that you understand that the message for you this morning is to repent and to believe in the gospel of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.